Okay, good morning. Saturday morning, breakfast is done, and we're off to start episode 49. So I think uh, last we left off, I know you had talked about um, meeting uh, Captain Pettinger, um, a sawmill uh, owner, as well as a former Fort Churchill uh, a resident, I guess. So. Yeah, no, well, he was there. He was an army captain, yeah. and he was stationed in Fort Churchill. So when I got uh, uh, when I got that walnut tree from Jeff Scott, I uh, had to get it sliced up. And I knew that, that somebody told me that Captain Pattinger has a sawmill. Well, uh, I saw the sawmill at, uh, at the wood show, so I contacted him, yeah, bring it over. And uh, Dave Long and I, we shared that tree and uh, we transported it on the trailer to Pattinger. And, but anyway, yeah, that is where I... Uh, I met Captain Pattinger, a very interesting man. He, I had some long talks with him. Uh, unfortunately, he um, he built a new house, but right next to his house was the old one. I said, "How come the old house is still up?" He said, "Well, he says I was born in that house." He said, "And I have no reason. I keep some stuff downstairs, but I really have no reason to." take it down. He says, I got lots of room here. And he did. Uh, and uh, uh, he says, it reminds me of my childhood. Uh, and I go through it sometimes. And then he, he told me once, he said, well, I see, you see that window upstairs? And I said, yeah. Well, he said, that used to be my bedroom. And in the winter time, it could get so cold. And uh, I was wondering if he was another Jules Verne. Uh, coming out with story, he said it got so cold in the winter time that when I woke up in the morning, my breath would go over the blanket that was up to my chin, and you could see an area of frost where it froze right on this. The, the moisture in his breath would freeze onto the blanket. So uh, I remember that because I thought that is really bringing the point home of how cold it could be in the old days. I remember them, but of course. Uh, I never had any trouble at home with the bakery, the whole house was warm. Uh, but yeah, uh, actually I got the, at the end of the millennium, so uh, I thought that today I would start with 2000. And uh, uh, a guy I knew in Whitby, uh, well I had a wood furnace, uh, an oil furnace, but also a wood furnace there in Whitby. And, uh, I needed all kinds of firewood and the town had cut a big tree down right near his house and he said that this for the pickup, whoever wants it, he says I can take it all or whoever, he said if you want it because I don't need firewood, he said but if if you want it you can come pick it up. So I was busy busy hauling that uh, those chunks of wood, they nicely cut it, for all I had to do was split it, but they cut it in firewood chunks. The, the town did, and uh, so I went up there with the truck and trailer and loaded everything up. And on the second trip, I come home, and mom comes out the door, come on in, come on in. And I said, what's the matter? Oh, I, I got to tell you when you come in. 
So I went inside. I, I said, what's, what's the matter? I, I want to unload uh, Theodite. Just like that. I said, Theo, my brother or yours? And she said, your brother, Theo. And I said, no, hell no. I said a couple of days ago, I, I was talking to him on the phone because it was his birthday. And he had his birthday on the 26th. And uh, every year on his birthday, I would phone. So uh, I said, it sounds like you have a lot of uh, a lot of visitors there on, on your birthday. Yeah, he said, I got the house full, but he said, that doesn't matter. I said, oh, you stay with your company and I'll call you back in a day or two. And uh, so I I left it at that and I figured, well, I'll, I'll give him in a couple of days and I can take all the time I want to give him a call. But then... Uh, that was on the 26th when I called him. I got the call on the 27th. We got the call that he had died. He had died that night. And his death was put at the 27th because on the morning of the 27th, they found him in the bathroom. And he was living all by himself. There was nobody else in the house. So, well, sorry, I know you said 27th month, year. I... Oh, sorry. Uh, that was in 2000, okay. because uh, we were talking on the phone in that little. Mm -hmm. So how? Uh, because I remember saying, so how did you? How did you, do you like your retirement? You got a year under the belt now because he just turned 66, and uh, he was 1934. So he he just had a year under the belt of retirement, mind you. Uh, he had a pretty good life in that respect, anyway. Uh, he would sooner have worked, I guess. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, he, uh, uh, he died that, maybe he got overtired or what, but he died of a heart attack. And uh, the phone call said that uh, you have to come to Holland right away because uh, you and uh, well, Joseph and I, the, my brother just above me, we were the uh, the only two survivors, and um, the will was going to be read, and we were supposed to be there. So, anyway, I rushed to Oshawa, got myself a ticket, and the next day I flew out because I also wanted to get there in time for the funeral, and. Uh, they kept him on ice long enough to, for me to get there, and then uh, we had the funeral. And uh, I had, no, well, he, that was in the old house, so uh, I stayed at Fun's place because uh, Theo couldn't, uh, could never come. I could have stayed there, but that was not the right thing to do. Uh, so I, uh, I stayed at Fun's, and Fun insisted on it anyway. And, uh, oh, yeah, Fun Fons. Uh, and, uh, and then the, the funeral came, and uh, that was a, a sad situation because uh, I always thought, well, I'm older than Theo, because when it came to, that was oh, half a year before, uh, I got, uh, I got this. Mail. I got a letter. Uh, that oh, Joseph phoned. Of all things, he's he phoned. 
which uh, made me wonder because it was the first phone call I ever had from him as long as I was in Canada and uh, uh, he was not known for throwing his money away. In fact, he drove around one time to, at the, end, at the end of the day, he saved himself a quarter for a new electric coffee pot. He had been all over the city at Nijmegen and he finally found one that was 25 cents cheaper. But anyhow, he, uh, uh, he said that uh, uh, Theo was, go he, he wanted uh, the two of us, like Joseph and me, to be the executors. Of his will, and I said, "Well, uh, it's uh, it's nice, but uh, first of all, why would I? Uh, you have to change it again because uh, I'm older than he is, uh, so I'll probably be be dead before he is." And, uh, and I didn't know I was going to get older that much, and uh, so uh, I said, "Well, why?" Uh, uh, for me to come to Holland and, uh, and, uh, and, and go through all that and I don't know any rules, regulations and laws pertaining to uh, the vision of uh, a will or whatever, uh, why don't you get uh, your son-in-law here? He's a doctor, he ought to know which is which and, you know, is his family, son-in-law, and let him do the, well, if you don't mind, I said, no, I don't care. Uh, I thought, well, uh, it's not going to uh, happen uh, anyway, at least not in the near future, and uh, of course little did I know. And uh, so th the two of them got to be the executors, and the funeral was over, and uh, uh, we went to the bank. There was supposed to be some uh, money or whatever in the vault. He had a vault in the bank. Whatever you call it, uh, like a bank, yeah, a little bank vault. And, uh, but then when we went there, you also said, uh, uh, I'm the executor and you're not allowed to come in there. I says, Is that is what the, the, what the law says? No, he says, I don't want you in there. I said, Well, the, how are you going to stop me? He said, Well, I just am not going to go there and I got the key of the vault. And I'm not going to open it up. I said, well, uh, I'm going to need some money because I flew out in a hurry. I got to go back. And uh, since it is my money anyway, if there is any money in there, then I split. And the next day, well, he went there and he gave me well, 12 or 13,000 bucks or something. And uh, that was uh, half of what was there, he said. And by the denominations, it couldn't have been. But anyhow, it, uh, uh, a couple of days later, he said, well, here uh, is tired and he wanted to go for holidays and all this trouble with the funeral and, and his practice and what have you. Uh, and uh, yeah, well, I'm tired too. So uh, there are a lot of things to do to, in the house. And uh, so we were thinking of uh, doing that first. I said, but I, I can't stay here for a month or two just because you guys want to go for holidays. He said, well, that's the way it is. He says, if you don't, it doesn't matter. I'll keep you informed. I said, no, when, when you empty the house and you start 
throwing things out because the house has to be emptied and it has to be sold, it has to be in the shape that it is uh, sellable. So uh, I said, I, uh, I want to be there. So I had to go back in September again. That was two trips in one year. And uh, yeah, that was the last time I was actually in that house and they had a big bin like, a, you know, one of these dumb boxes sitting by the, the side of the house and uh, the couple of windows up in the, in the, in the upstairs, uh, they, uh, in the storage. There was all kinds of stuff from the bakery yet that was sitting there, paper and what have you, and boxes. And they kept throwing it and carrying it from the rest of the house, bedding and what have you. And it all went into the dumpster. I said, wait a minute. I said, do I have the right to pick out the stuff that I like to take? What, 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 what do you want to take? What do you, you can't do nothing with that. I said, well, that's for me to decide. If I like to take it along, I'll pay for it. You don't need to worry about it. But uh, because uh, Gare and his kids came in and they were all hauling out like crazy. Uh, uh, so I picked a few things here and there and uh, I still have them. But that is, uh, things started to get off the rail and then uh, it was not... Uh, on the best of terms that that we parted. But anyway, uh, it turned out that Joseph and I, we were the last two left. And uh, there was not an awful lot of corresponding after that anymore. Uh, he never wrote anyway. And no, in all the years, he, uh, he never sent me a single letter. Everybody else did, but uh, I think the stamp was too expensive, but anyhow, uh, then it was in 2012 that I got a notice that he had died. And then all of a sudden I realized I could have taken that uh, executive job because I was the last of the Mohicans, I was the last one to survive. And uh, uh, he uh, he got there, so I uh, here here I am. I uh, uh, <laughs> a lot of things get go through my mind all of a sudden because when I think about it, I actually, in my mind, I am back at that time and in that place. It's, uh, uh, I better not close my eyes because then I, uh, I can't even tell the difference between here and there anymore. But uh, anyhow, uh, uh, we went to visit different places. I went with fun and gradually, uh, uh, that was in, in uh, well, I had a, a week and a half or so uh, to go in May, June, where, at the burial time, when uh, when Theo got buried. So I went with fun different places, but then I had to come back in September anyway. And then a princess, then uh, I'll make sure that uh, when you come back, 
to get everything finalized from the estate that uh, we have we can spend some time we don't need to vote uh, need to worry about anybody so that's what uh, that's how it went I, uh, uh, I went back in September and uh, uh, we went to uh, you want to see some of your family he said I said I wouldn't mind to go to Berninger. that was where my dad was born and I in August 1940 I spent the whole month of August there because I was over at my uncle who had a farm and I left uh, the farm life and my cousins they were one was a little bit younger than I and the other one just above me so we made the perfect uh, three studies, so to speak. And, uh, uh, yeah, Pun went along and he, he liked it. He chauffeured me all over the place. Uh, he also took me to my, uh, my cousin in, uh, in the Hague, well, near the Voorburg, uh, and that was a, a nice visit. I never was up in the North Country too much. Uh, I never had enough time. I really, uh, after the seminary and and with the rest of it all, I, I uh, then I went to Canada, so there was not enough in between time to go visit anywhere. But. Uh, uh, I went to Druten. Druten is not too far away from uh, from Beuringen. I went there too, and uh, that was on another occasion when Joseph actually came to pick me up and to go to Druten. He said that uh, you know that's his Oma Wim. Well, he's dead, of course, but uh, the cousins uh, uh, they're all there, so you might want to go there. And Wim has been visiting. Canada with Harry a couple of times, and uh, well, Joseph wanted to do that uh, for whatever reason, and uh, uh, yeah, that was a nice visit because Wim was uh, was Wim van Haar, and then him uh, he married my uh, cousin Mies, Oma Wim's, uh, my uncle Wim's uh, daughter, and uh, he was. A widower and Mies had never married before, so uh, yeah, that was a pleasant. We I always had a lot of fun when uh, when Wim was over. Uh, we had a few beers. Uh, Wim liked his beer, and uh, of course I, at the time, had the old beer too. I never was much of a drinker, but uh, uh, enough to make it more pleasant for for the others. And uh, so uh, we went, oh, the, they had a little ceramic angel, a white angel that is uh, only about two inches long. And it had a big ring in its hand, that angel. And it was hanging over top, that ring was over top of a candle. And the weight of the angel locked that the whole thing onto that candle, it kind of locks in there like the climbers in a, in a, in a hydropole. 
anyway, uh, I saw that and, and then me said, what are you looking at? I said, that angel there on that candle, I said, where the heck did you buy that? And she, oh, she said, I don't know, but I've had that for years. I said, because I've never seen one like that. I, I, I said, if, if I knew where you, uh, where you bought it, I would go and get one. And, uh, well, if you like it that much, and here she says she took it off the candle, and then uh, you take it. And I said, thank you very much, if you're, you're, you're sure. No, by all means, I'm glad you like it. Uh, and I'm glad now that she gave it to me, because uh, they're both dead now. But anyway, uh, we went outside to go home, and then Tony, Joseph's wife, she said, give that angel to me. They wrapped it in a, in a napkin. I put it in my purse so it doesn't break. And uh, so Mies gave it to her. And at the same moment that she opened her purse, she dropped the thing. And then it broke. The ring, of course, being very thin. And I thought, is that deliberate or what? And uh, so I said, oh, don't worry. I'll glue it together. Oh, you can't glue that, I says. There's no such thing as I can't. You, at least you can try it. So that's what I'm going to do. And I put the pieces together and I put it in my own pocket to make sure it wasn't going to fall again, accidentally. And, uh, well, there it is hanging in the dining room on the candle that has been there ever since. And, uh, uh, yeah, we went to Berlinger and then my oldest brother... Well, he died in 1966, he was 42, and uh, his uh, partner lived in Handel, that is a, a, a village not too far from Oplo, from my hometown, and she was uh, a divorcee, and her son was in the institution where my brother worked in The Hague, he looked after like... Uh, like uh, taking care of those boys like he was a guide for the boys who couldn't stay home. He was uh, the only kid that she had and uh, her husband had left her and uh, she had to go to work to to maintain their life and she couldn't uh, uh, well the boy did not get the attention that he needed so he went home quite a bit but uh, he also stayed in that home uh, for a number of stretches. And so my brother had uh, had to go and talk to her once in a while uh, if there was something with the boy. And anyway, the next thing you know, he was seeing her more than normal. And they started to go out, uh, but she was alone. He was alone, so... And then they moved in together in in Handel while he was still in The Hague doing his job. And then on the weekends he came to Handel and they got a house there. And uh, so I thought I'd go and see Honey. Uh, her name was Honey too. And uh, uh, her married name was Dawn, Annie Dawn, but then of course she, uh, 
she went under her maiden name, I forget what date was. But um, I went there with Fun one time. I said, Fun, I like to go there because way back when, when my brother died, he was supposed to get his share of what my mom left behind. And Joseph, he worked for some office, whatever it was, and they saw it possible to disown Jo because Jo was supposed to have owned my dad for a loan, which was never written up anywhere. And uh, But somehow we managed to do that, and I didn't think that it was right. So uh, I had I had my share from the uh, from the estate from Theo, and I thought, well, then uh, for to for my parents' honor, it was their money that was left evenly divided among the kids, and uh, your share had been uh, taken away and. So I gave that to to Honey at the time, and then she said, I have, uh, oh, she had a couple of vases and pictures and what have you. Would you like to have them? Because, uh, see, meanwhile, uh, she had been uh, alone for a long time, and then she married this guy, uh, you know, that she was not alone anymore, and his name was Delaced. So her final name was Honey the Laced. So Fun and I went there, and uh, she she said, I have a pile of uh, reel-to-reel tapes. Uh, I don't know what is on it, she said. There's a lot of music on. But I wanted to see if there was maybe one reel or the 40 of those big reels. There must be one that maybe my dad's voice is on, so I can put it on a CD or something. It's more permanent. Yeah, you mentioned that last episode, bringing home and Brennan helping you get the real real. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, but anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's what happens when... Uh, uh, oh, now I have to check it. Did I say about uh, the last time talk about Ypres that I... Uh, I went to Belgium? Thing? Belgium, no, you didn't talk about Belgium, I don't think. Well, Ypres is in Belgium, and that is where the the big battle of the First World War was. And uh, Fun suggested one morning, why don't we go to Ypres? And uh, Jehan mentioned that, Jehan Bloed, and his brother Toon, Toon Bloed, uh, they were here, and they were in Bidby also. I, uh, I've always been friends with them. And... Uh, uh, I said, well, uh, well, he said, you know about Ypres. I said, well, who doesn't? Because we learned that and the, the, the ravages of what Belgium had suffered during the First World War. He says, that's right in the middle of it. They still got the trenches and they still have the the cemeteries. He says they got a couple of uh, cemeteries with Canadian soldiers on it. And I said, let's go to Ypres, so that, uh, that's what we did, we, uh, the four of us, we 
had into the car and drove to Ypres. And first thing we did was well, by then lunchtime, and uh, they had a great big marketplace. I uh, can't think of anything here that of that nature, but it was it was big. Like uh, anyway, there is all kinds of restaurants and bistros and all kinds of small businesses all around. There was this one restaurant and they had the patio outside. It was uh, nice weather, like in fall weather, September. And uh, we went, to, uh, we sat there and I, I'm looking around and I said, I wonder what that building is all about. It seems a lot of people are going in as to some kind of museum. And the princess know that is what they call the Lagerhall, the the sheet, or where they made linens, where they made bed sheets and stuff. And uh, it was known in Europe for the best uh, bed sheets that were made. And uh, they also did a lot of uh, trading with other countries. That was anyway. That was the Lagerhall, and there were other things. If you want to see a museum. We could go and see a museum sometime, but I thought we might want to go and see those bunkers. I thought you might be interested in it, and you can see what it was like when they really used them, because when uh, in the Second World War they had bunkers too, but uh, they were only, <coughs> some of them were not used at all, and others very, very little on uh, on the 10th of May, and after that it was all over anyway. Uh, it, it only took the Germany one day to, uh, one maybe two, to uh, take care of Holland and, and then he moved on to Belgium and from there to France because it was what they call uh, a blitzkrieg and the blitz is like a light lightning and it was a lightning war, Krieg's war in German and uh, so we uh, we went to see the bunkers, and inside there was a, a bunch of that grey, greyish kind of clay and water on it. And uh, they said to fun, I said, they must have been in better shape in 1914 than they are now, because uh, I, I said, were they uh, actually used for for the soldiers to, to sleep in it or what? Because all these trenches, because there were trenches coming from one bunker to another and going out in the field and then the dirt that came out of the trench was put on top so that they had something to watch the enemy on the other side of the trench and he says well that is where they actually looked after the wounded in these bunkers and uh, the soldiers actually slept in the trenches and you know like uh, they took turns uh, like certain groups of 10 or 20 or whatever slept and the other ones kept watch. But that was very interesting because that kind of warfare in the Second World War, we didn't see trench warfare. That was uh, something uniquely different for the First World War. And then uh, there was a, a stand there and people went up there, they stood on a little uh, elevation and uh, there was like a, a lectern and there was, I said, what would that be? And he said, oh, that is where they wrote uh, the poem that uh, Dr. McRae composed. And uh, 
about, you know, the, in Flanders Fields, the poppy grove. Right? I said, yeah, I said, that is, he is a Canadian. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I said, that was a medical doctor. And, well, right on that spot where that lectern stands, that is where they found his body and took him away. And they, in honor of his poem, they uh, built that and everybody, it was in four different languages on that, uh, on that brick tablet and I stood there and as I read it and I was standing it's like standing on hallowed ground uh, because Dr. McRae actually had been shot right at that particular point and it, it gives you a whole new perspective on war warfare and and the bestiality and cruelty of mankind and they call it civilization but anyhow uh, we went from there into a museum and they had a couple of rats that were uh, a taxidermist had had them fixed up, and they showed in the in the showroom. And uh, I thought that they were like uh, uh, like these uh, what are those animals with the with the with the needles coming out? Uh, porcupine. Porcupine. I. See, because I got my head in, in Holland, so uh, we call them eagles in Dutch. Anyway, uh, I thought that's what they were, porcupines. And no, he said, these were, these were rats, and they were living in those trenches. And, uh, uh, oh, it was an awful mess, and the other things that they had, and the guns, and uh, all the rest of war crap, sitting, sitting in that museum, and... Well, Johan had uh, immigrated to New Zealand in the same year I went to Canada, and uh, he went later to California, but uh, having been in New Zealand, uh, we went to a restaurant uh, later on to have a bite to eat later in the afternoon, and uh, there were some people and they were talking, they were talking English, but it was not the English that we were used to in Canada or the U.S. And then Johan was sitting there quite attentive. He says, I wonder where they're from. And he listened and he says, they're Aussie or New Zealand. He said, I'm going to have to find out. I find an excuse to talk to them. So somehow he sauntered over to the washroom and, oh, sorry, uh, he accidentally supposedly uh, hit the chair that the guy was sitting on. Oh, that's quite all right. And uh, I thought I hear you. I heard you talk English. Uh, you, you wouldn't be from the U.S. or Canada, would you? No, I'm actually we are from New Zealand. He said. And then John said, "Well, uh, I went to New Zealand in 1954." Before you know it, they were having a big conversation. He took an empty chair from the next table, and he sat with him. And I said to Fun, "Well." He'll be all right for a while because they are talking about the good old days in New Zealand. And uh, and then we went over, uh, well, he, he was only there for maybe 15, 20 minutes. And, uh, well, they wanted to go too. And he and Fudd said, well, we should go to that Canadian cemetery. And, you know, that arch when we came in, the arch that goes over the road. I said, yeah, I noticed that that is... But he said, that is the gate 
that you come into Ypres and uh, uh, they could close that so nobody could come through. And when you go in that arch, he said there is an opening uh, and you go up the stairs and on the top there is a cemetery and that's Canadian cemetery. I said, well then let's go up there. So we drove up there and parked the car and as you walk through that, that's that, that column on, on the right hand side as we went out and uh, uh, you turn you turn around and you look back there is a big wall covered in brass and in those in that brass in those plates they those sheets they must have been uh, oh heck, the, twice the height of a door and uh, at least three or four doors wide and it was just filled with names of Canadian soldiers that were buried right on the other side of the arch and we walked around there and yeah that was all from the first world war and then around that graveyard there was a brick wall and I looked over it and there is a steep drop down and those were the defense walls. That was one of those old uh, uh, defense vestiges where uh, you could keep the enemy out by the geography of it. Uh, you know, you just couldn't enter. They couldn't climb the, the sheer wall anyway. So uh, the people inside were safe. Anyhow, uh, I looked over and just an unbelievable sight, took quite a few pictures of it and uh, well it got it got later and at that time Johan was living in Ravus in Belgium in the Flanders area and coming out of Ypres which was not all that far away uh, we dropped him off at home first and we had a coffee and then we went on our way to St. Thomas again to uh, where Fun lives. And uh, on the way home, I said to Fun, what the heck, I remember this, this house. It's all boarded up. I says, uh, when I was in the seminary, that's not too far from here. Yeah, he says, we just passed it. I said, no, I didn't see that because it was dark. And uh, I said, but uh, the dormers are crooked as hell. I said, why don't they turn? He says, there's nothing wrong with the dormers. They're going to put a whole new development in there. That is why it is boarded up. And uh, I had no idea, Zareen, why the, the dormers in the house look crooked. But the next morning, we, uh, after we went, we went to bed, it was late at night, we went straight to bed. And the next morning I get up and I said to him, what the heck happened here? I said, that that stone wall between you and your neighbor, it's crooked right there where the cat is sitting. The cat was sitting on top of the wall. He said, no, that is not crooked. That is when I discovered that I had, and I never heard of it before, but I had detached retina. And because I didn't know anything about it, I stayed. I should have tried to get the plane 
and go back right away, but I stayed for my time another three or four days. Then I had to go back to Canada, and before I got to an eye doctor, quite a bit of time had lapsed I, uh, until the doctor, the, the family doctor, told me, uh, I think you got something very wrong with your eyes, you better go and see this doctor and uh, I think her name was Basiak, was a female uh, eye surgeon. And I went there and she told me that I had a detached uh, retina and uh, she would have to put a, a buckle on my eye. Uh, I said, well, uh, what does that involve? Uh, the, well, she said, I, I'm going to have to put you, uh, put you in a sedation, like uh, put you to sleep. Because I got to take that eye out and put the buckle over top. And um, it's like four fingers that clamp around it. And she said, and then I have to inject a liquid in that eye. And so she explained the whole thing. And well, what, what am I going to do? I, uh, I was medically blind in the other eye, so I was effectively blind uh, a couple of weeks later when things really got bad, it detached more and more and uh, so I got that buckle on and I remember uh, mom uh, taking me in the arm and we are walking up and down the driveway to the back 40s in Whitby because I couldn't see enough to find my way back into the house. That's when I found out. I saw the difference between light and dark. And uh, in, the, in the beginning it was okay, but then after that uh, surgery, uh, I had to recuperate and uh, that took quite a while. And uh, I had to well, keep active, she said, uh, keep active. How active do you keep? It's okay if you have two good eyes, but the only good eye I have, and it is covered up because she put a patch on it. Uh, so I, my vision was pretty well shot. So anyway, I did that for a while and I remember one day and I was sitting at the kitchen table and where my chair was, I would look out the kitchen window that was on the driveway side. and. I had made some bird, little bird houses out of bark. Uh, I, I took everything that uh, Captain Pattinger had from when he sliced the outsides of a tree that he made planks out of, and that was firewood. He says, help yourself if you want to take it. So I took a few besides the ones that, that I had, and I somehow fashioned some birdhouses out of it. It looked just like a chunk of uh, bird uh, a tree branch or a small kind of tree and drilled a hole in it so that uh, the birds could go in there and nest and they did. And I, uh, I was sitting there and in the beginning I, I could see it was light outside but I couldn't even see the, the hydropost let alone the birdhouse. And uh, 
and I, uh, uh, it got better and uh, slowly. And one day I get up and I sit there in the morning. I said, Mom, Mom, there is a birdhouse on that tree. It's still there, is it? Yeah, oh yeah. Can you see it? Yeah. And I stared at it and I stared. I was so happy that my eyesight had improved that I could actually see the birdhouse. And after a few minutes, I could actually see the entrance hole that I had drilled in it. One of my most exciting days in my life, because blindness, I think, is the, one of the worst things that can happen to you. You can do uh, deaf or mute, but blind is, is horrible. So anyway, slowly, my vision came back, and uh, I had to I had to have another operation, and then my niece said, there is a good, my mom went there, and there's a good uh, eye surgeon, and he has a good reputation, and he is in St. Mike's in Toronto, why don't you go there? And I said, well, I'll see, I'll think about it, what is the name, and she gave me all the details, phone number and what have you. And I went to see Dr. Nicholson and I asked him if he could maybe make an appointment because uh, Dr. Nicholson and I, we were good friends and uh, oh, said, no problem, I get my secretary tomorrow morning to, uh, that was after he came home at work in the afternoon, uh, I'll make uh, an appointment for you. And uh, sure enough, the next day he phoned me and he says, uh, you have to phone this number and uh, you can go there next week or well, within a week I was over at that new uh, eye surgeon because uh, she was a good surgeon but she had poor bad manners and uh, uh, I was bleeding out of that eye and uh, came out from under the patch and I would wipe it off my face because I I didn't want uh, uh, I didn't want anybody to see blood on my face. So it's an ugly, an ugly thing to see anyway. And uh, she came out of the room. It was my turn, and she said, "Give me that rag." And she just yanked it out of my hands, threw it in the garbage. Why, you, why can't you take a, a, a Kleenex or something here? And uh, so no, she was really bitchy and. Uh, so I was happy to to be able to get uh, a highly recommended eye surgeon in Toronto. And they probably have better ones in Toronto. I thought a big city as opposed to a smaller city like Oshawa. And uh, it was going okay for a while until I finally had to have my, uh, oh, my uh, cataracts. The cataract on that eye had to be removed, and uh, uh, he scheduled me for the 2nd of January, well, okay, the 2nd of January, and New Year's is over, so uh, I don't know what time it was, but I had to be in St. Mike's, and uh, uh, Mom went with me, I think, uh, maybe somebody else too. But I had my my uh, 
so-called eye surgery. Oh, John was there. Uh, I remember now because uh, when we left, they had to go home, and then John says, "Mom, did you, did you smell that? What? I smelled liquor on his breath." My mom said, "Yeah, that's what I thought, but it couldn't be him." Well, I thought that, and I said, "Well, I don't think you're too far off, because he was doing the, the, the surgery, putting the." The, 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 the removes the cataract, and I don't think that uh, he was too steady. I think he was still hungover from New Year's Day. So anyway, that went on for uh, a few weeks. I had another appointment. I had to come back, and I went in there into his office on Queen Street, and uh, uh, I said to the secretary when I come in, I, Albert Williams, I have to see. Dr. Houtkoft and, oh, I'm sorry, Dr. Houtkoft isn't here. I said, oh, is he late this morning, is he? No, he is, he's out of town. I said, what do you mean out of town? I have an appointment. But he went to the States. I says, to the States? Why didn't you let me know? I come all the way to Toronto for my checkup after my surgery, and now he is gone? And she says, well, uh, he is not only gone for a while, he is gone for good. He's teaching, well, I forget the name of the state, where he went to teach uh, uh, eye surgery, like uh, ophthalmology, ophthalmology. So he's not coming back. I said, what am I going to do with my eye? Because I'm supposed to be coming back. Well, we have a, a doctor, some Italian name, I forget his name, and uh, he took your place, you can see him. I said, well, okay, uh, as long as I have a doctor to take care of it. And I go in, it was my turn, I go in there, and uh, he says, and what's your name? And I told him why I was there, and he looked at my eye and he said, well, I'm sorry, but you're not one of my patients. I said, well, the secretary says that you took over the patients of Dr. Howcroft and uh, that you would look after. No, he says, I don't want nothing to do with Dr. Howcroft patients. You're going to have to look for somebody else. And there was nothing I could do about it. So there I, there I sat and uh, 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 I went in 2002, just to jump a little bit ahead, I have to in this case because my final eye solution came, we moved to Tilsenburg, my eye got well enough that I could do my daily work, although, although with a, a lot of problem, but I could do it. and. Uh, so I moved to Tilsenburg and, uh, and Tamara got us a doctor, he just started up, Dr. Chang in Tilsenburg and she already made an appointment for us and we could go and see him. So that was, uh, I, I, I think it was still in December, in early December we moved in 
and uh, and we had before the end of December, we had an appointment with Dr. Chang, and he recommended that I go and see. I told him about my eye problem. You see, Dr. Louis in Woodstock. He is a very good doctor. He's an eye surgeon, and he will take care of it. So I made an appointment with Dr. Louis. Or he did, and you got to see him then and then. And Dr. Louis, the miracle doctor, I call him because uh, he he told me that's what I found out. He said you should have been on that eye should have been operated on within six weeks after it got bungled up because the muscle that closes opens and closes your pupil has be has gotten stuck on the lens that was put in and it has sat for more than six weeks and it is very risky because if I try to loosen it off and if something goes wrong that that pupil may close and you won't be able to see anything again. And he says, I'll try and see what I can do. So he arranged for a, for a surgery and he tried, he said, well, I did the best I could, but it is, uh, it is not, it is better, but not what I would like to see. But he said, have you ever considered trying to, to get surgery on the other eye? He said, the eye actually works, but it is extremely nearsighted. And that's why you only see the difference between light and dark. And extremely close up, I could actually tell time with a watch, with like two inches away from the eye, and I could actually see my watch. Beyond that, everything was a blur, and it turned white in the daytime. So he, uh, <laughs> he says, you... Uh, he checked that eye again, that that blind eye, and uh, he said, I think I can fix it up, and, but I have to order in a special lens because uh, they don't have these in stock all the time. He said, you go home, talk to your wife about it, and see what you want to do. I said, doctor, it is my eye, not my wife's. I decide what I do with my eye. And uh, I said, order the lens and uh, I'm game. So anyway, he ordered the lens and about two or three weeks later I was scheduled for surgery and uh, mom was driving. I couldn't drive at the time and uh, she parked where it was for the patients parking and uh, I see that. Uh, so we walk in, I get my surgery and in the afternoon I had to stay for a couple of hours because he wanted to check the eye before I was going home. And he said, no, you can go home now. And he says, I, well, within a couple of days. Within a couple of days, uh, you have to come back and I'll check it out. But when I came out of that hospital, went into the van, Mom is sitting behind the wheel and I'm sitting there looking out and then of course the first thing I do put my close my my so-called like the old eye my left eye and I'm looking around and I could see I could see her with that eye that I never could before 
and I'm looking around and then I see the sign a few feet up against the pole and I'm sitting there with the eye, uh, one hand in front of the eye and I said aloud as I was reading it, patience parking only, that's as fast as I could read it but I couldn't read it with that eye before. Mom gets upset and she says I know that, I parked here this morning because I saw that. I said, but you didn't see that I was reading that with the eye I just got operated on. You got to be kidding. I said, yes, it's the first time. For the first time in 72 years, I could see with both eyes. And thanks to Dr. Louis. So now I can see with both eyes. Uh, that was, uh, that was an amazing an amazing experience. I, I'm forever grateful to Dr. Louis uh, and uh, and his skills. They're second to none. Yeah, uh, but that. Uh, yeah, I got out of Ypres, so I think we might as well leave it there, yep. if you don't mind. Yep, that sounds good. We'll stop it and pick it up next week. Yeah, the 50th next week, eh? Yep, thanks.